Do you ever find yourself in a situation where you think maybe the Lord in His divine engineering has perhaps made a mistake? I mean, we can look at some silly examples of that first. My, one of my favorite ones, you look at it and you think, surely the Lord made a mistake here. The duckbill platypus, right? You look at this and it looks like a beaver that's got the thing stuck on the wrong end and has been given flippers. It's got the tail on the front. It doesn't make any sense. You look at the creature and you think, surely, surely the Lord got his wires crossed when he made this. It looks like part weasel, it looks like part beaver on the wrong end, and it's got flippers for hands. What on earth has God done? Or, again, in the animal kingdom, you could look at the narwhal, right? Real actual animal, most amazing thing. Looks a little bit like an ugly dolphin that decided to grow an eight-foot horn out of its forehead. It's the unicorn of the sea. It makes no sense. It's a weird thing, and you would think, surely, surely, the Lord's made a mistake, I mean, if I hadn't seen pictures of these animals, I would not believe either of them are true. They make no sense. But yet, if you go on the internet, which I'm not suggesting you do, and look at pictures of what God has made, you can find they're actual real animals. Just as bizarre as they sound. Mysteries in the kingdom of God. And if we're going to be honest, you look at them and go, surely, maybe the Lord made a mistake here. Now, we start with that obvious illustration because I think most of us would go, well, no, of course, the Lord never makes any mistakes. He never messes up. His plan's perfect. He knows what he's doing. Unlike the rest of us, we have no idea what we're doing, but he at least knows what he's doing. And we may have that unshakable confidence when it comes to talking about the animal kingdom and things that exist on a continent that we've never even been to. But it gets much more difficult, I suspect, when it comes time to actually have to deal with our own difficulty our own suffering, when illness descends upon the house, when you lose a job right at the most inconvenient time, when that coworker that's incompetent gets the raise, gets the promotion, all of those things where it kind of deeply gnaws at our soul, and that's when it kind of begins to creep out, and we say, surely, surely the Lord made a mistake here, didn't he? I mean, look, that coworker, they are, I mean, they are the definition of incompetent. How could, they get a, how could they get a pay raise? And I didn't. How could they get a promotion? And I didn't. I mean, they're a buffoon. Look at them. And yet. You know, see, I think what really we're actually showing here is the kind of heart of human nature, where uh, when it's things out in the ether or things that impact you but not me, it's very easy to say that God knows what he's doing. And it's very easy to sit down with somebody across from you, even in the middle of their tears, and to say, friend, the Lord knows what he's doing. He hasn't made a mistake, and he hasn't made one with you. But it's much, much harder for us to be honest about ourselves with that. And when we get to the difficulties that we have with our jobs, our bodies, our families, existence that we have been called to live, it's so easy for us to kind of grumble and complain and to see things as being so much bigger when they're mine instead of yours. I think Matthew chapter 26, the portion that we're looking at today is going to provide, I, I hope, 
at least some thoughts for us to contemplate on this idea of, does God make mistakes? It's going to give us an opportunity to contemplate the Lord Jesus and to contemplate Him and His work from this perspective. Does He actually know what He's doing? I tend to believe that academically when it's dealing with your life, but okay, even when it comes to mine. Does He actually know what He's doing? Where we are here in the book of Matthew, for those that haven't been here for the series, which was broken up twice in the middle, uh, we're nearing the end of Jesus' life. It's just a matter of, at this point, um, just uh, hours, really, until he's arrested, tried unfairly, and executed unjustly. He's murdered in just a few hours from this, but we're in the last week of his ministry, and he's been instructing his disciples to prepare them for this great reality. And we might lovingly say they're not really coping super well. Uh, they're having a hard time of it. In fact, actually, we looked at earlier where he said that he would be uh, dying in just a matter of days and two days and, and through crucifixion. And all of the men there listening don't get it. Mary does. She seems to be the only one at that point that understands fully what's uh, happening. Uh, but a lot of them just don't, they don't understand. Uh, until we get to this part, and you talk about even more confusion being introduced into the minds and the hearts of the disciples, one of these great passages that um, kind of shake our understanding of how we think of ourselves and how we think of others. And the first thing I'd like for us to consider is this idea of does God know what He's doing? We should have confidence in the Lord because Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It should inspire confidence in us as we contemplate this and thinking how Christ and His ministry, the Lord Jesus, is a fulfillment of all that the Old Testament has promised, but there's a significance in what's taking place. In verses 14 and 15, we touched on briefly last week, but they lay out the plan for betrayal. And if you're reading the book, kind of not knowing the ending, if you're reading this gospel for the first time, it was the first thing you read in Scripture, it would, it would bother you terribly. And again, many of us, we don't have any emotional connection to Judas or to this part of the story, but realistically, if you were reading it for the first time, it would, it would upset you terribly. That Jesus, the one who says that He is the Lord of life, the one that says that He is the Son of God and Son of Man, is being betrayed, and he's being betrayed not by one of his enemies, but by one of his own. And interestingly, when you get kind of chance to see what's happening, it, it really is just this beautiful kind of human portrait of what was explained in the Old Testament. Judas here selling him for 30 pieces of silver, and the cost of a slave, the replacement cost of a slave. So that Jesus would be treated unjustly, so that Jesus would suffer unjustly, so that Jesus would ultimately even die unjustly. And even in this, we read part of it, right? Isaiah 53, that perfect portrait of God's anointed one, the Messiah, who would be by definition the suffering servant. That the rival of Christ would not be a total victory at first, but instead would be marked by humility and difficulty, trial and ridicule, marked by sadness and sorrow. It's significant 
Again, as many of us non-Jewish readers, some I'm, I'm sure have that lineage in your family, read verse 17 and just kind of blow past it as part of this just kind of giving the setting for a situation. This is now the first day of unleavened bread that we're in the middle of the Passover feast. And remember, I talked about this last week. They, they celebrated, they, Jews know how to party. They do an entire week, but with a capstone day. And what's happening here is they're acknowledging, Matthew's telling us that they're in the middle of the party, the middle of the celebration of Passover, that all of this is going to take place. And that would be extremely significant in the context of a Jewish faith. Passover, you remember, is introduced in Exodus 12 and 13. It's then recapitulated in Numbers 9, but in Exodus 12 and 13, the Passover is introduced to the Jews as a feast to protect them from God's wrath. God is going to send the destroyer into Egypt. His destroying angel will kill the firstborn of all that are not covered by the blood of the Lamb. And so from that point on, all of Israel's history is shaped by a concept of people being spared from the wrath of God by the blood of a sinless Lamb. It's in fact so significant that, again, I mentioned number nine, Numbers 9 already, but uh, as they're prepping to leave, even interacting with God on Mount Sinai and go into the promised land, this is the first thing they do as part of that is to celebrate the Passover as, again, this kind of category being introduced so that they understand sin has a real cost. It's a real problem and has to be dealt with. And the only way that that can be done is through the blood of a sinless lamb, a category that would then be fulfilled ultimately in Christ Jesus. This is a meal that they're in the middle of, the Passover feast, which is designed to show how God passes over the sins of his people based on the death of another. That's the theological backdrop of what's taking place. And you can see, I mean, you can't even say it's almost tailor-made for this exact situation. No, it is. That's, it was designed from the very beginning. I love how that's kind of part of how Matthew tells the story. We have four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with each author emphasizing slightly different things so that we get the whole story told from four different perspectives. Part of what Matthew emphasizes is how Jesus is, that fulfillment of the Old Testament. Constantly quoting, constantly referencing, constantly drawing attention to the fact that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament. This should do, I think, a, a number of things for us. As modern readers today, as we reflect upon it, one is it should give us a love for the Old Testament. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. It was set up perfectly for it, but it's one book. Old and New Testament, one Bible. It's one story from cover to cover. It's the story of Christ arriving inside time and space and creation and redeeming for himself a people to present back to the Father. It's one story. So when you go and you read the Psalms, they are the story of Christ, the words of Christ, really. 
When you go and you read Genesis, it's telling of the need of Christ. When you read Leviticus, even the law is presenting the portrait of Christ. It's foreshadowing all that He is and all that He will do. It's significant. That's really the backdrop of what's going to happen here on the cross. Is the, the idea of Passover looming in the background so that all of the Jews would already have been thinking about God providing a lamb to take away sin. But in terms of our kind of opening question and thinking about does God make mistakes, I think it's refreshing for us to consider. No, we, he doesn't because his plan's been from the beginning. I mean, our planning is so limited. Some of you in here are brilliant planners. You might be able to get two weeks out in advance. Some of you are wretched planners. You might be able to get two minutes out in advance, and that's all you're capable of doing. You have a very surprising and interesting life, really, because it's never existing prior to two minutes out, I guess. God's plan's been from the beginning. So when it comes time for you to contemplate the suffering the Lord has placed in your life and the time that he's placed it, it's not a mistake. It's not a mistake. Whether you're dealing with, again, those coworkers that make you want to go crazy or back spasms in the middle of preaching, that's the Lord's plan. It's part of his perfect wisdom. He hasn't made a mistake. He knows exactly what he's doing. In fact, this, I think, gets further reinforced in verses 20 through uh, 21. 18, Jesus is so committed to this Passover being the backdrop of what's taking place. He's made all of the plans necessary for the people to celebrate it. It's all uh, been prepared in advance so that Jesus and the disciples would be ready to do it. He's already con uh, contacted a man, probably one who's one of his followers. We don't know for sure. He's already arranged it and tells the disciples to go and make contact with him. Uh, they go and prepare the parts and pieces of the meal so that together they would be able to celebrate a Passover meal together. It's the Lord's plan. It's the Lord's provision. He's fully in control. I love how the disciples don't even know what's going on, and Jesus already has kind of all of the plans in motion, all of the pieces at play. But I love what begins to happen at the meal. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and you remember in this culture, in this time, meals occupied a very significant place in the home. It was not like many of our homes where a meal may be eight minutes, where two of the ten people are in the same location, and people drop in and drop out, and it's just kind of chaos, if at all, together. Now, for them, this was the nightly entertainment. It was uh, the opportunity for adults to discuss, for children to listen and to learn, uh, for family or visitors to enjoy the company of others. It was um, not just a meal, but entertainment and relationship all in one. And while they're eating, everybody there together, a big family meal, right? Jesus, the disciples, certainly some others were not told of. And Jesus drops this just, you know, little nugget on them in verse 21. I love how Matthew tells it. It's like it's almost delivered in passing. 
Truly, I say to you, that's a, a clause to add emphasis and to add like weight and gravity and, and help the listener understand the truthfulness of the saying. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. I, I love there's a lot of theologist, theology even in that statement. One, Jesus knows that it's happening. It's not a mystery to him. It's not like, oh, rats, the bad guys are winning. It's not like, ooh, wow, Judas outmaneuvered Jesus on this one. Wow, Judas is really smart. It's not, you know, some sort of praise for the, the devil himself who has somehow figured out how to trick the disciples. Uh, no, it's the Lord just declaring it. He knows it, and he knows it to be fact that one of them will betray him. I also love that it's not kind of what we would call like the subjunctive tense. It's, it's not in the realm of possibility or might, right? If, if I were saying this or one of you were saying this, I, we would probably say something like, I know one of you is trying to betray me. Notice the difference. It's a conditional One of you is trying to do something. You may or may not be successful. You may or may not actually be working on that right now. You may or may not. Jesus, on the other hand, does not give a conditional statement. He actually makes a declarative statement. It's going to happen. It's a matter of fact. It's a matter of reality that's fixed and firmly so. One of them will betray him. I love it. This is not the statement of a man who's been outmaneuvered. This is the statement of a man who is bringing sin from darkness into light. This is the statement of a man who is not worried about losing. It's the statement of a man who is making a declaration for a purpose. To bring it so that all would know, so the disciples would see, so that they themselves eventually would be encouraged. He knows. In fact, actually, I think we might even be able to say not just that he knows, but that he's actually um, forcing the matter to be dealt with. If Judas was perhaps having any qualms, which I don't believe he was, Jesus is forcing the issue. Go ahead and make your decision. Judas, you have the opportunity to stay and to share fellowship with us, to stay and share communion with the living and true God. You have the opportunity of actually having sweet fellowship with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Or you may leave and leave as a traitor and go serve the evil one himself. There's mercy even in this sentence as he calls out Judas and brings his darkness into the light to give him opportunity to repent and to change, and yet he does not. The Lord's in control. I think, again, so often we either intentionally or unintentionally have created a God in our own image, not created an image of God from the Bible. Meaning by that, we've taken our understanding of God and we've read who we are and what we are kind of onto his character. And I think in, in terms of, particularly when we're dealing with difficulty, it's so easy for us to do that and so natural that 
for us to think that because our life is chaos, that must be how God's life is too. Because our life is filled with the unknown, that must be how God's life is as well. Because our life is filled with circumstances that we can't control, that are too big for us or too, too large for us or too powerful for us, that it must be that way with God too. Now again, I think many of us are theologically sophisticated enough that we don't say that. But it's just how we feel it. That when it comes time to deal with that great difficulty in our life or that great bit of suffering to kind of just naturally in the back of our brain to just say, well, I'm sure God's just doing his best. He's got, you know, he doesn't have answers like any of the rest of us, which is horrible theology. I mean, I love how you get to see the interaction here. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly who is betraying him. He knows, he knows it all. And he's bringing it to light. Forcing the matter even within the context of grace so that his perfect plan will be executed. And friends, I I don't know what difficulty you have today. I do know that you have it. You live in a fallen world much like I do. And it's important to know that whatever situation you're in, the Lord is using it to bring things to light that need to be taken out of the darkness and into the light. Now, whether that may be the, the hidden parts of your heart that you really don't want to see, and honestly, I don't either. Maybe that. It may be habits that you have that the Lord is going to sanctify you from and through. It may be you've got a secret bitterness in your heart. Who knows what it is? I don't, only the Lord. But friend, whatever difficulty you're going through, please understand that Christ is fully in control of it. And it's being tailor-made. It's been shaped on purpose to accomplish his desires in you. Now, again, as I've often said, that the natural kind of tendency when we interact with that type of thinking is to say, I understand that for small hurts, like the type of hurt everybody else has. But I just struggle with actually thinking that's true for big hurts, like the kind of hurt I have. And again, I love how it just shows the human condition, right? Your hurts are the small ones, mine are the big ones. You know, Jesus doesn't understand what it's like to be as miserable as I am. Or Jesus doesn't understand what it's like to hurt physically like I do. Or Jesus doesn't understand what it's like to be as scared as I am. Or Jesus doesn't understand what it's like to be betrayed like I have. Man, that's wrong. All of those are wrong. Those are lies we tell ourselves, but my goodness, they're wrong. I love how you get to even see how that works here. They're reclining, Jesus is eating with them. He says, one of you will betray me. Again, non-questioning statement, a reality that will happen. 22, it gets awkward really fast. Very uncomfortable. And they're very sorrowful. They begin to ask each other, you know, is it me, is it you, who is it? They don't, they don't know. And I think that's really important as we think through this, that it wasn't obvious. Judas was not an obviously bad guy. He's not some cartoon villain that you're like, well, of course, all of them were wearing white hats and he had a black one. He's the bad guy, which is, again, so often the way he's treated when we handle texts like this as a caricature. No, they have no idea. Judas looks the part just like every one of the rest of them. Sometimes seems to be victorious, sometimes seems to be mischievous, but 
is hidden in plain sight. Finally, he gets enough of the questions the Lord does. Is it, is it me? Is it I? Am I the one that's done this? That he answers and says, the one who's dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And gives a bit of a hint. It's not um, quite so simple. I think the movies, if you've ever watched them, ruin your imagination here. In fact, most Christian movies that deal with biblical texts like this lock your imagination in and in many cases into the wrong thing. Realistically, what they're having here, we know the exact part of the dinner this is taking place in is it's probably a whipped puree, kind of, you know, hand smashed and everything of dates um, and some vinegar and some sour herbs, bitter herbs, uh, that some mixture of kind of oily fruit with this really tart and sour uh, sauce. You dip your bread in it and you eat. And anybody that's prepared a meal that's, you know, a bowl that you have to dip your bread into and eat, you either, for a, you know, party of 13, you either have to have 13 different bowls or whatever, or you have to have sharing groups. And so what Jesus is doing is he's actually clearly kind of delineating for everybody in the room is, look, you want to know who the traitor is? He doesn't just say it's Judas. He could have done that. I mean, like, is that guy right there? Instead, he says, it's one of the guys that's been using this dish together. It's one of us. It's not the guy sitting on that side of the table or that guy sitting on that side of the table. If there's four bowls at the table, most likely there were. It's one of the group of guys here to clue them in. And again, he knows who it is. It's not like it's a mystery to him. He wouldn't make a statement like that without it being known to him. But instead, what's he doing for us? Is he's reminding us of how intimate of a betrayal this is. That the man who's selling him for the price of a slave is a man that he's sharing food with just before the betrayal. Psalm 41 actually uh, interestingly predicted this. Psalm 41 verse 9 reads, Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. My goodness, what a statement that is, isn't it? That's exactly what happened. It's almost like it's been the plan from the very beginning. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The man betraying him isn't some vindictive Stranger, it's not some, you know, murderous, you know, lunatic or something. It's a dear friend, a man who's traveled with him for years. I mean, what type of friendship do you develop traveling with somebody, walking with somebody for years, listening to the teaching? taking care of the poor, doing things together. I think as Michael Card in his song dealing not on this passage, but the, the second betrayal coming, says, only a friend could betray with a kiss so that it could hurt as bad as that. It's not the exact lyric, I'm ruining it, and I apologize to him, but uh, my memory isn't what it used to be. Only a kiss could do that much damage because only a kiss could level that type of betrayal. 
And I love how you get to see kind of both elements working here of the fact that all of this is fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, even Psalm 41 verse 9. All of this is a display that Christ is in control, but all of it building to this unbelievable betrayal. Now, one of his insiders would sell him out for a measly amount of money to sell out the Lord of life. And I love this too because it it should provide to be a little bit of a corrective for our little temper tantrums when we get our feelings hurt too. And I might have just hurt your feelings by calling your feelings a temper tantrum, but I'm not wrong. It might not be tactful, but I'm not wrong. But how we experience little betrayals and just love to take those little betrayals and to blow them up into big things. Or to take little pains and let them become major, explosive, controlling pains. In fact, actually, I think we could go so far as to say this is the spirit of the age in which we live, isn't it? To allow insignificant things become the most significant of things. To let us be a culture, a society, a people that are dominated by frivolity. That are dominated by silly and stupid things. In an effort to keep from having to deal with the real thing. Friends, I don't know what you're experiencing now. But the good comfort and consolation is that Jesus understands. I don't know what type of pain you have for those that are having it. Some of you may not be. Jesus understands your pain. If it's physical pain, friend, he's going to the cross in the story in just a little bit. That's much worse. He knows. If it's the pain of betrayal, he knows that. He knows what it's like for a person that he's loved and spent time with to stab him in the back. He knows. Emotional pain, spiritual pain, again, he knows. And we're just a few short verses away from him praying in the garden. Prayer time so overwhelming, it damages his body. Friends, he knows what pain is like. It's important for you to understand this, though, as you interact with his promises, is that when he gives them, it's not like he's making his promises out of ignorance. We, we make promises out of ignorance all the time, and sometimes they're the things that make us feel the best, but there's such foolishness. Right? When your kids are first born, and they're such sweet little babies, and you're talking to them as their children, you say, well, I promise I'll never let anything happen to you. Really? Wow, that's impressive. Fairly certain you don't have that ability. Right? We say it out of ignorance. We don't know what the future holds, but it's motivated out of love. 
God the Father is different. He knows exactly what the future holds. He knows what everything holds time-wise. He's outside of time and space. When His promises are written, when His Word is written, it's written with full knowledge of whatever experience you are currently in or could ever go through. So when He says He'll never leave us or forsake us, He knows that where you are right now. When he says that there's nothing that can separate you from his love, except for himself, he made that promise to you knowing exactly where you are right now. When he explains that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love toward you, he made that promise for you right now. When he promised that his mercies would be new every morning, He made that promise for you right now. Because it's easy for us to want to kind of draw the line here in the story. And at this point, if we kind of stopped here, it looks really like Judas wins. Jesus calls him out. He gets petulant, acts like a child, eventually filled with shame and the devil. He runs away to sell out our Savior. But I love how Matthew finishes the story. He doesn't even stop it there. In fact, actually, he continues and continues it with a, a very terrible explanation. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. One of the guys sharing, sharing food here. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This has it's been prophesied. The Son of Man's going to be betrayed. It's been prophesied. We know this. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Why? Well, because Jesus wins. In fact, actually, it would have been better for that guy if he'd never been born. Because betraying the King of Kings and the Lord of Glory comes at a cost, the wrath of God. And guess what? Jesus wins. Certainly, this betrayal is going to do something. It's going to be used by the devil to unjustly and unfairly murder the Lord of life. But death isn't strong enough. It's not a big enough enemy. It can have victory over Jesus for a time, but it cannot defeat him. He's too powerful to stay dead. Raises himself back to life even spending time with his disciples before returning to glory. It's important to understand that just as Christ has even felt the deepest of our betrayals, so we can be comforted, but we can even more so be comforted because he wins. He's not not negotiating your life from a position of weakness or loss. He is the mighty God that has planned out all of your days for your good and for his glory. And this is, I think, again, perhaps maybe where our language is a little bit imprecise uh, and actually shows a theological error. We say that King Jesus will be victorious. And friends, that, will, that is true. When he returns uh, back to earth, he will return in victory. He will return in glory and power. He will destroy uh, all evil and sin. Yes, he will. But it's not just he will be victorious. He is victorious. 
In fact, actually, if we really wanted to be kind of technically and theologically precise, we could even go so far as to say, whatever horrible thing you're experiencing now is part of his victory for you. That he's using whatever horrible thing that is, and however horrible it is, he's using it for your good and for his glory. We see this kind of concluding in this section here of this looks like the biggest strategic blunder in human history. That the Lord of life would allow himself to be betrayed, would allow himself to be betrayed in such a way that a people group would capture him and then torture him and then even murder him. It, it looks like a mistake. And you get to see this kind of all the way through. That's what the disciples are saying every step of the way. Lord, it's a mistake. Lord, it's a mistake. Lord, it's a mistake. I, I love how you even get the one part where a sword is drawn and cuts off a, a fellow's ear. You made a mistake. This is not how it's going to end. And Jesus is like, friend, you got it all wrong. None of this is a mistake. This is the ultimate victory. It's just not a, it's a path that you're not wise enough to see. And I suspect for many of us, that's actually where we need to kind of reorient our hearts. Whatever challenge we're in, whatever difficulty we're in in the moment, is our path of victory. We're just not wise enough to see it. Because he's made his promises, and friends, he is never false on his promises. All of his promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Which means that if you are a child of God, while you may be covered, uh, while you may be suffering for a time, while you, while you may be called to difficulty for a season, this is your path to victory. Because while it may be emotionally hard to believe, he has not made a mistake even in this. For the Lord loves his people. Father, we admit emotionally it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this. And the deeper the pain, the harder it is to believe the truth. You are so gracious to us that we would ask, O oh Lord, that you would increase our faith. Forgive me for my unbelief. Forgive us all for our unbelief. Give us your spirit to give us faith. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.